Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Food Intelligence Podcast. My name is Eyal. I'm a creative marketing manager at TasteWise and the producer of the Food Intelligence Podcast. Today, I will be replacing Miriam, and I'm happy to tell you that in today's episode, we are hosting the second session of the TasteWise Talk series. In this session, we had a conversation between TasteWise CEO Alon Chen and David Shaw, ESG Director of the International Zone at Kraft Heinz, about sustainability, what it means for 2023, and the role that food and beverage must play. We would love to hear any comment or question you might have. Feel free to contact us at live at tastewise.io and join us live at the next TasteWise talk session. More details on our social media and newsletter. That's it for now. Enjoy the conversation. We are joined by Alon. Alon, give us a wave. Alon <laughs> is CEO and, hi, uh, and co-founder of TasteWise. He has a wealth of experience in leveraging AI and big data across technology, business, and marketing. Notably, he did that at Google, where he initiated and launched the Google Partners Program in 27 countries, serving as Google's chief marketing officer for both Israel and Greece. He also led the company's relationship with the World Economic Forum. In addition to all of the amazing work that he does uh, at TasteWise, he's a human rights activist for the LGBTQ community, and he holds a BA in economics from Tel Aviv University, a master's in law from Bar-Ilan University, and an MBA from the University College Dublin. So a very busy man, and we're grateful for his time here. David, um, who will also give us a wave, is the ESG director for the International Zone at Kraft Heinz, which is everything outside of North America. He is an FMCG industry veteran with close to 20 years experience in sales, commercial, and supply chain. And he has spent the last four and a half years working in ESG. So lots of experience um, and a wealth of perspective to share with us. David is part of the UK Plastics Pact Advisory Board and a founding member of the OECD Sustainable Supply Chains Initiative. And he works closely with government and NGOs alike. So he's joining us from London uh, this afternoon slash evening. So thank you very much for having us or for joining us here. Um, and the floor is yours. We're going to spend about half an hour uh, talking about all things sustainability. I will be off camera, um, but we'll pop in with any questions as they come up. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Miriam. Thank uh, you, Miriam, for this uh, introduction and for organizing this. Uh, David, I'm so excited to have uh, this conversation with you. Uh, in preparation, we, we've been uh, discussing so many, you know, of the hot topics that, you know, the industry out there is trying to cope with. And um, as you know, uh, we are working in the food industry and, and consumers is, is every, are everything and, are, and, and they are at the center of every conversation and every decision making mm. that uh, uh, we we have to make, right, to be able to, to make the change. So. Can you can you just you know tell us David what what is it what is actually your job? I mean ESG is the, is is the hot topic that even us as a as a company we're helping a lot of companies with uh, a lot of the food brands out there. What do you do at uh, Kraft Times uh, International Zone? What is your thanks job? a lot. But firstly, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a it's a pleasure. I love talking about these topics, getting inputs and getting thoughts and, and different perspectives from uh, from yourself and also hopefully those listening today. Um, so. I guess, actually, just touching on the consumer piece first, it's one of the things I love about FMCG. You know, I had a brief stint out with Consumer Electronics, and I think the focus we have as FMCG on consumers makes us, makes us very different. Um, so in terms of my role, I sit on the international growth team. So for, the, for, for those of you who don't know, that's sort of like the corporate strategy team uh, that we have here at Kraft Heinz. Like, like uh, Miriam said, the international zone is everything outside of North America. And I report directly into our global ESG lead. So I have a foot in both camps. I drive the overall strategy, but I also get the opportunity to 
to really focus on the, the key core ESG areas. And to your point, what are those core ESG areas? Well, the, the, the wonderful thing, but also the challenging thing is ESG is so broad. When you think about it, obviously it stands for environment, social and governance. So it touches everything we do, whether it's human rights, which was brilliant to hear in your introduction, our environmental footprint, but also how we hold ourselves as a company, how we govern the decisions we make. And I think that's that's a really big part of what I do is trying to make sure that we can be consistent in both those big ambitions, but also the smaller decisions that get made every day by teams across the globe. Well, fascinating. So, so if we if we try to narrow down the conversation, just for you know to get started, sustainability is, you know, uh, prior to COVID, uh, if we were looking at sustainability, it was actually booming. People were talking about you know how they can save planet Earth if they stop using plastic straws, mm-hmm. and obviously you know the pandemic came, the Maslow pyramid, uh, you know, enforced all of us consumers to think about our you know. Uh, well-being and survival before anything else, and we saw that you know sustainability was uh, was not top of mind to say the least. You would walk down the streets and you see so many you know face masks on the floor, polluting everything way more than any you know plastic straw damage um, did in the year. Um, so what we've been observing is that after COVID, you know the, the the graph started going back up. So consumers started you know caring about sustainability again more than before, but actually something dropped in the middle and it's still not significant enough. Hmm. And it's not significant enough, especially for corporations to make decisions just based on sustainability. So how do you prioritize a world where the consumers are not willing to pay the extra buck for something that is uh, more sustainable? How do we go about this uh, and make sure that we were changing the decision-making for a more sustainable future? Yeah, it's, it's a really good, um, really good reflection, Alon, because I think in the immediate aftermath of COVID, as soon as we were hit by it and it was this this new experience, there was this real awakening as consumers and as, as you know, citizens of the planet where we appreciated you could see the direct impact. You know, there's some great images about the uh, the cleaner rivers, the the fog. But over the course, as it extended, people started to obviously take some of the sort of primary needs a little bit more into focus. And sadly reverted back to type. I would say one thing that's been positive, though, is the number of commitments, certainly around climate, that big corporations have made. I think prior to COVID, it's about 20% of organizations had made a, uh, had a, made a net zero commitment. Now it's, it's above 60%. So we've made some good progress. But there is a real challenge in terms of the, the, the cost impact and the choices that organizations are making, because we've gone from the initial challenge of COVID, we've then gone into supply chain disruptions, supply chain t- challenges. And then that that has continued with the inflationary environment, which I think we have to see through the lens of climate change. You know, a lot of these inflationary challenges have been driven by geo- geopolitical instability, climate change and yield impact, and the then consequent choices in terms of security of supply, security of uh, uh, and energy security hitting most of these organizations. So I, I think it's a real... Uh, it's a real challenge that the, the consumers who are choosing sustainable choices was a much greater niche. And, you know, they measure effectively what's the premium of sustainability. And it was it was well over 30 percent in the most recent report that dropped to around 28 uh, percent. So as you start to see it becomes more of a mass approach, we start to see that reverting back to type. And you have to take the assumption that consumers aren't necessarily prepared to pay more to be more sustainable. We have to make those choices for them. Yeah. So here's the thing, you know, making something more sustainable 
without increasing the price may take a lot of technology. And that's, you know, something that's an evidence of the, you know, food tech, ag tech uh, industry booming, right? Because it's clear that the future must go there. And actually, even from financial economic perspective, you really have to change uh, your supply chain and the way you go about producing. But let's you know, let's focus for a second on, on you know, the transformation of plant-based. We know how much uh, damage, you know, animal-based protein brings to um, to the environment. And w- one interesting uh, story I have to tell about that is that uh, we did a quiz, a playful quiz to 100 professionals that were working on animal, um, plant-based uh, protein substitutes. And we asked them, in your opinion, what is the number one reason for consumers to choose plant-based protein? And, and actually, we were so sad and, and, and shocked to see that, uh, you know, the, the, the people that were supposed to be developing products for the industry were getting it all wrong. So only 20% of the, of the people that took part in the quiz um, actually got the answer right, which is health. They all thought sustainability was the driver for plant-based eating and uh, animal cruelty. But actually, if you look at the mainstream, uh, it's five times bi- bigger than um, health is five times bigger than animal welfare and sustainability combined. So is the secret going sustainable, helping, uh, helping people choose sustainable, um, making sure that the products are also healthy, which makes even more complex uh, uh, task for the R&D teams out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, you know, what you reflect there is this um, almost quite sad state of affairs where I trumps we. Quite often, it's what's in it for me as a consumer, which is 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 driving those choices. And um, like I said at the beginning of COVID, I think that was a it was a real opportunity where people started to look through a slightly different lens. The sad thing is we've reverted back to type. So we we have to deliver both. In reality, we have to drive choices around portfolio about innovation that are doing the best thing from a from a corporate point of view. Because you know the it's not necessarily the cost of action. It's not necessarily those investments. That comes with all innovation in many ways. If you're doing something new for the first time, if you're looking to, to innovate, there are seeding costs. There, there are investment choices you're going to have to make before you get to a mature profit delivery. That is the case, whether it's plant-based or other um, topics within sustainability, which I'm sure we can, we can touch on, on later. But it's the cost of inaction in this respect. It's the choices that we have to make to drive the, the right approach. Um, you know, plant-based health is a primary concern when you think about our global population. Um, given the advances in, in medicine and, and technology, in a very short period of time, probably in the next five years, diet and obesity and diet-related diseases are going to be the single biggest killer to the adult population. So we shouldn't minimize diet alone. You know, from a, uh, from a consumer point of view, it's absolutely critical. But we also need to look at it through the the, the environmental lens as well. Yeah, uh, when you think about it, you know, uh, planet Earth uh, triple it's um, the number of uh, people uh, in in a hundred years or so, which is you know staggering. You you keep saying that what happened? Why now? Right? We just outnumbered um, um, the the resources on planet Earth, and and it seems like more burning uh, than ever to to make the shift. But you know, as a as a you know fairly large corporation that touches, you know, so many billions of people's lives, you know, through food. How do you prioritize? How do you decide for which category, in which product, 
you can make the biggest impact that will also be um, be uh, making an impact both on your bottom line, right? Because we do know that it makes a difference, um, but also from an environmental perspective. Yes, yeah, so I, th- I think it's a great question. There are um, almost sort of no regret choices that we need to make as an organization. These are choices that will impact our overall, for example, carbon footprint. Um, they will impact our... Um, our full value chain human rights. These these are choices that we need to make as an organization independent of the product proposition. Then we've got to find a way to think about specifically what is the right product proposition. You know, um, you, you you touched on meat quite rightly, and you know certainly from a North American footprint, we've got a large meat portfolio, meat and dairy portfolios. If we decided to discontinue our meat and dairy overnight, that demand would just shift elsewhere. What we've got to do is make sure we've got stewards of these businesses who can make the right decisions to improve the overall footprint, whether that's investing in regenerative agriculture, whether that's consumer comms to help them transition and adapt their choices and their preferences. You know, we've got a major challenge. You talk about the global population, but there's this split between the effectively the global north and the global south, the developed and the developing nations. And the consumption of meat and dairy in the the developed nations is, is a challenge in itself. But in the developing countries, Meat is seen as this luxury item, this premium that isn't currently consumed in the vast quantities it is in the developed world. And as they start to pull themselves out and and have the social mobility to be able to afford um, meat and dairy products, there's a real risk that we'll see increased consumption in those categories rather than decline. So we need to we need to think about how do we develop the right communications to our consumers? How do we develop the right propositions? And how do we find a way to talk about different ingredients in a way that can benefit the health of the planet and the health of the consumer. In, in reality, if you think of a, of a retail environment and straight back the brand, straight back the products and think about them as ingredients and commodities, our retail stores are dominated by some mega commodity categories. You know, you look at cereals, you look at dairy, you look at um, different areas within those, um, within those propositions, even arguably tomatoes, the commodities that dominate stores have not been the commodities that are best for the health of the planet and the health of the consumer. They have been easy to grow. You could load them with salt, uh, salt, fat, sugar, and make a huge markup. And that's you know what we've existed as a as a big food over the last 150 years. We need to transition and provide consumers with something that's good for them and good for the planet. Yeah, we see that the, the interesting part about you know. Um, TasteRise as a platform is helping these large uh, corporations to basically decide where to innovate and what to do first to make a big impact. And 90% of the activity on our platform is around better for you and better for the environment. So everybody is, you know, um, you know, working uh, towards there. But when we're talking, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, meat and dairy. These are like big categories. And as you said, in, in the developing world, you know, animal-based protein was was not a standard, you know, how do you, um, I, I heard this uh, while traveling in India, uh, right before COVID, I learned something culturally that was so different. You know how they call carnivore in uh, India? No, tell me. They call them non-veg. <laughs> so, if you think about it, the reverse was actually, um, you know, the plant-based era was it was already there. And now yeah. the, 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 the developed uh, countries are, you know, impacting badly on it. But really, if we're touching upon, you know, animal-based protein, 
there's a lot of conversation in the in the in the plant-based protein and all the food tech companies that are coming up that there is heavy subsidies direct and indirect into the animal-based protein that governments have been, you know, uh, pushing and, and and providing for many, many centuries because it employs a lot of people, because, you know, uh, it's traditional farming, even in developed countries like Switzerland, right? How, how do you see that in terms of like making the change? I mean, it's not just up to the you know, to the corporations and the businesses, if, if governments are subsidizing in a way, this traditional industry that, that was actually sustainable when we were like a couple billion yeah. uh, people on planet Earth and now we're like close to, uh, you know, double digit. Yeah, absolutely. I, look, I don't think we can overlook the, the transition that's required in many different ways. There's a huge green transition that, that needs to be done. And the difficulty within the food industry is like 40% of the global population are in some way associated with the food industry. So we have to be very mindful of the impact, but that shouldn't stop us making that transition. It should be the exact opposite. We should be accelerating that transition and driving the, the changes that are required. That's exactly the purpose of the sustainable supply chain initiative that, we, that we're working with the OECD and the G7 countries. Because when we look at, the investment choices, the subsidies around those mega commodities, mega ingredients, they aren't directed for the health of the planet. And we need to find a way to show the real pricing of those commodities and drive the right progress for us as a, um, you know, as a civilization fundamentally. That's, that's the key piece, addressing some of those inherent imbalances that make it much harder to drive the right choices for everybody. I think it's, it's absolutely critical. Yeah, and, and you know, it brings me to the question, maybe, you know, from your experience, uh, it takes a whole village, right, to change uh, right. such a big... Uh, who do you think, you know, would be the, the key player that we should keep an eye on and really uh, work with to drive the, 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 the needed, you know, transformation in the industry and consumers, you know, acceptance and, and uh, approval? Well, I, I think I would possibly look at it the other way. Whilst I think it's a great question, it's difficult to address... You know, the, the scale and the volume that's currently required for the food industry. Like the, the sad reality is we we ugly overproduce as an industry. If you look at the levels of food waste, if you look look at the levels of obesity in the adult population, and even sadly in the in the the, the population of um, under 18s as well, we overproduce. So production isn't a challenge. What we need to do is change the way that we produce change the way that we do it and we need to hold the big food companies accountable we need to be measuring their performance driving and requesting the transparency to drive that progress because there are the disruptors and there are the transformers that's what the future will be you know i'm very lucky to work in an organization that's been around 150 years for us to be around in 150 years time we have to transform or we'll be disrupted and, you know, the example I always talk about with, within our organization is, you know, the, the very first Heinz product was horseradish. It was not ketchup. It was not beans. It was not uh, mayonnaise or anything else that we, we may now well be associated with. It was horseradish. Great organizations adapt to their consumer needs. And those consumer insights are critical to drive that change. Uh, and I think that's, that, that's, that's what's got to be key is drive the accountability for the organizations who exist. It's then on them to transform. If not, they will be disrupted by... Uh, by up and coming, either consumer demand or organizations that can take advantage of it. 
Yeah, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned an interesting statistic that forty percent of people actually are somehow involved in food production or food industry. Yeah. You know, uh, an interesting stat I, I saw uh, recently was that ten percent of the uh, workforce in America is working in the food service restaurant industry. Just wow. in that, I mean, just I, in food I, service. Wow, percent, ten percent of a workforce. And, and actually, obviously, they're responsible for so many people. And that without taking into consideration retail, groceries, farming. And so it's not just in the developing countries, just to say, it's actually a big challenge. So when we think about the future of food and, uh, you know, uh, the industry as and, and also governments, they need to think about the future of work as well, yes. right? What 100%. will people do when we automate, when we get AI to do a lot of things and, and robotics that will do? And um, and I know you know coming uh, from um, the digital space in the past, there was always a conversation about future work. What would people do if everything was um, was more aut- automated and digital? And it's a it's a big question to be to be asked. But I I love your example um, about horseradish. Right, we're seeing a big comeback uh, when it comes to food trends. Um, you know, food trends I, I I divide into two different kinds of food trends. The first kind is what we all refer to food trends. It's the culinary trend, right? Mm. It's like, what do people consume? Is it like horseradish now? Is it uh, ube? Is it chia? Is it uh, monk fruit, uh, you know, to sweeten sweeten your food, you know, in a natural way? So this is one part, right? The the, the, The culinary part, the applicative part. But actually what's more interesting is the motivation, benefit, and the need, and how that's changing. And what we've been seeing both on the culinary side and also on the motivational side, we'll be seeing a retro, you know, going to the, going to the past. So, um, you know, kombucha, right? Fermented, uh, you know, mushrooms in a way. I remember my uh, grandma, she's uh, from Iraqi uh, um, origin. She used to ferment, you know, all kinds of vegetables. And we all used to, you know, drink the, the the brine the, the the you know the the liquids that were part of the process and so that's now like a, one of the biggest you know hits in uh, in beverage so it's an interesting thing so you think we're going back uh, to more clean uh, more um, more you know less processed kind of foods is that the future I think there's def- definitely a role for it you touched on something that's that's absolutely critical to both. The challenges and the opportunities. In reality, food and consumer habits are quite nostalgic, but particularly food. Now, people rely the behaviours, the habits, what we eat is quite often dependent on what we associate through childhood and and uh, influence there. But you've then got this other factor of uh, exploration and people travelling further afield and discovering, um, you know, artisanal type products and processes which have created something that that is pretty um, pretty traditional in, in the regions it's from. So you've got these two fighting factors, and it's it's finding ways for those two things to coexist. The big, um, from a, I guess from a, an overall concern point of view, is this idea of perhaps ultra-processed. And you, know, you touched on plant-based, and that's one of the big, um, big concerns around plant-based when you look at some of the ingredient lists of, of some of the... Um, some of the things that it's, it's very easy to fill it with with uh, ingredients and preservatives that aren't familiar to consumers. And it's striking that right balance because I think consumers do want to live cleaner. They want to have 
that transparency of where their food's coming from, what it contains. They want that feeling of nostalgia from what they had in the past. And they want to be excited and delighted by new exploration. So I think all of these things play a role in, in that future. Yeah, I think that's um, one of the insights um, that drive consumers, you know, to to eating and consuming uh, plant-based uh, protein and doing so repeatedly, right? So the magic mm-hmm. with food production is like consumption frequency. How do you find uh, your product? How do you get your product to people's tables and, and plates uh you know, repeatedly. And one of the drivers we're seeing for animal um, animal substitute, animal uh, protein substitutes yeah. is health. So if, if, you, if your product is not healthy, people will try it out because, you know, it's cool because it's on the menu, because it's, uh, yeah. it's on the shelf. They'll try it, but will they buy it, you know, repeatedly? Will the consumption frequency increase? Because otherwise you don't have a viable uh, business. And, and that's why it's important more than ever to... Um, better understand what are the drivers of consumers in different categories, what would make a difference for them, and then how to put this benefit forward to drive the change. But as we said now, the, the base is that the transformation really must be healthy. So if it's going to be more sustainable and not so healthy, uh, it's not going to work. For instance, um, you know, the, the meat industry is using a lot of plastic, you know, packaging, right? Because it's the best way to preserve the, you know, the, the meat now, if you will be replacing it with, uh, you know, paper base or what, anything else, then the shelf life will be way shorter. And then that will reduce, will end up with a lot more, um, pollution and an impact, negative impact on, on the environment. So how do you strike this balance? It's, and, and have you seen any interesting technologies that we should put an eye on, uh, for the future of most sustainable food? So there's a couple of key elements, I think, to, to your question, Alan. Uh, firstly, there is no perfect when it comes to, to the future, probably it's be ESG or more broadly, or whether it's sustainable. There's only better choices, and hopefully we'll innovate and improve from that. Sometimes that's scary to people because they're searching for perfect and they won't take a step in the right direction. But you've got to be clear on where, what are the areas of concern, what are the areas that matter to you, and build that into a decision-making framework so that you can make the choice that's best for the overall environment at that time, accepting that it won't be perfect. I think the, um, you know, going back to packaging, I think there is a huge investment associated with packaging. Like it's, whilst nobody in FMCG, I would argue makes packaging, we're reliant on it in many ways. We've built factories around it. Everything is structured around the packaging that we've got. However, there's loads of great innovation out there. There's loads of opportunities for us to do things differently. And I, you know, that's the, the challenge we lay down as an organization there, that, that that's the focus for us. As part of that, less packaging comes to reusable and refillable. And I think this is one of the, that those consumer value action gaps that's very, very evident. You know, if you ask people in terms of, would they buy products that have refillable or reusable packaging? You get a response rate of about 74% of consumers say, yeah, I'll, I'll consider that. I'll absolutely do something around that. The reality is we've done many, many trials from a refillable, reusable, and they fail because consumers aren't changing to that. And I think that's, the, uh, that's one of those value action gaps that we have to close to really drive progress. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's... Um... There are so many tech companies and food tech companies trying to solve, you know, different parts of the process, you know, from supply to all the way to packaging and serving and so on. 
Um, and, and it does seem like that there are some early adapters, right? Uh, for instance, uh, all the meal kit, you know, the, the, this boxes that comes to your, you know, front door once a week with exactly the ingredients you, you need to have uh, without packaging, right? Uh, most of it is, uh, but and obviously it's, it really is for the early adopters that can afford that, right? Yeah. And not for, as as we have to face reality. I mean, the vast, you know, big part of the, even the developing uh, world um, need to get as many calories as possible a day per, for their dollar, right? And and it's it's a real it's a real uh, um, challenge and and also um, it's a real opportunity because if you manage to do that in a, in an efficient way that maybe technology can help solve then you can uh, you can kind of you know my mom never used a computer she just like went from typewriter all the way to a tablet right so there's maybe we can make this transformation also in our um, you know universe and and make sure that. Uh, that um, we continue to uh, spread the, the news. And, you know, one thing we've been doing, we realize we are working with a large uh, multinationals and also up and coming food tech companies trying to change, trying to better understand consumers so they know where to focus so they can drive the change and not come up with products that ended up, you know, uh, discontinued like 90% of the innovation, right? We, I keep saying, and I'm sharing with my team, that if we got 50% of the innovation right, we could you, we could help so many consumers. Mm. We could help them get what they actually need um, and actually want, and uh, that is you know part of our mission. But we found that we um, you know we work with the, with the large multinationals, but also we have to start working with nonprofits that try to educate consumers on why they should make a different um, uh, choices. And uh, but we're only getting started, so. You've touched on a key part there. If we're serious about the transformation that's required, whether that be in nutrition or whether that be in the environment, we have to make it affordable. If we really want significant volumes to drive the change, it needs to be affordable solutions. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at the priorities, you know, uh, if we take a step back and say, what do consumers take into consideration when they go to the shelf and buy something? It's like, first and foremost, it's price. Right. If it's not affordable, they can't buy it. Right. And then uh, taste. So never compromise on the taste and the mouthfeel and the texture and all that. It's not replaceable. And, and only then, you know, you have the brand and the packaging and the convenience of the packaging down to health and very low at the bottom sustainability. We have to bring it up so it will change, you know, uh, consumption behavior and hopefully will also help uh, change um, the industry's approach to uh, getting us there much faster. I hate to interrupt, um, David and Alon. Thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. I was typing furiously notes for myself for further consideration. So thank you for sharing your perspectives. We've gotten quite a few questions in, so I want to spend uh, the next ten minutes at least addressing a few of them, um, and then with maybe your permission, we can uh, somehow collaborate after to, to get your perspective on these questions sure. as well. Um, I want to start with one that I feel is connected to to the point that you just made, David, about affordability. Um, so maybe you can extend beyond that. So this question reads, David, you mentioned that consumers aren't prepared to pay, aren't prepared to pay more to be sustainable. We need to make those choices for them. Can you elaborate on what you mean by making those choices and what are the most, prior, most important priorities to consider given that affordability is a top consideration? Absolutely. So I think, you know, this touches on probably um, a number of key areas for us as an organization. But just give you some specific examples. Our carbon footprint. You know, there are many different ways that we can tackle that footprint. The, the most, um, the biggest part that we're focusing on is regenerative agriculture. Now, we've created 
industrial farming, uh, you know, as a as an industry that has been optimized for cost, that has been optimized for yield, that's been optimized for for production volumes. And if we're going to take a different approach, that's the right thing to do for the biodiversity of the region. If we're going to make choices, that's the right thing to do to eliminate the use of agrochemicals and reduce our carbon footprints. That's going to impact some of those choices. That's that's going to um, get in the way of some of the legacy optimization that we've had. Mm. That's not to say it can't be optimized in the future, but there's a cost of transition that's going to come. Now, I don't think ourselves as an organization or any other food company should expect that cost of transition to be picked up by the consumer. That is a choice that we need to make. Similarly, on packaging, you know, moving from uh, a plastic non-recyclable packaging format to something that can be fully recycled, that cost shouldn't come to the, the cost of the consumer. That should be a, a cost of transition in the, in the same way any other innovation has that, um, that, that investment upfront to, to make the transition work. Yeah, David, maybe to address that, in, you know that in some countries, uh, actually, when you buy a plastic bottle, you actually have to pay extra. And if you want to return the bottle, you get the, you get the, the, the fare. And maybe it needs to be done also with the food-related uh, packaging. I, but, but the infrastructure is not there to even collect I, all of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that alone. Like deposit return schemes is a real way of working. We just need to price it right. I think it's one of the reasons refillable, reusable packaging has failed in many trials. And, you know, I think Loop, for example, have, have pulled out of, uh, have ended their pilot with Tesco in the UK because the premium we were asking as part of that deposit return scheme didn't meet the value equation for consumers. But if if it's a small amount, if it's something that they can get back, if it's something that they can collect, you know, if you look at their deposit return schemes and the, the level of um, uh, packaging that comes to reusable in Latin America, it's huge. It can work. We need to find ways to to look at all of the different externalities to, to, to drive these solutions. Yeah. And actually, what you mentioned, you know, carbon footprint and, and industrial farming and regenerative farming. Um, actually, this is top of mind for consumers. There's a lot of uh, a lot of interest around that. And an interesting anecdote, again, going back retro to the past, uh, in Judaism, you if you're a farmer, you have to let the earth rest every seventh year. It's called a sabbatical, and it's um, it's actually uh, you know so doing a comeback to what our ancestors uh, used to be I, doing, and we're back there. Similarly, I saw an article um, in a, um, a publication for farmers from 1920s, which said these are the, the ten steps to be a successful farmer. And you look at the list now, and it's basically the principles for regenerative agriculture. And somewhere along the line, we got lost with um, almost the the ease of use of agrochemicals and. Uh, and, and perhaps the the demand and the, the greed from a from a food industry point of view. Yeah, an interesting um, another anecdote there is that a lot of the new uh, ingredient, novel ingredient companies that are trying to come up with even you know uh, flavors and fragrances that are one percent natural, you know, using fermentation, using uh, uh, advanced technologies, and and so there's future for that as well. There's a lot of uh, a lot of, a lot going on on the mm. you know food tech and ag tech side to do a lot more vertical farming, making sure you optimize, but also making sure that, you know, maybe you don't need to grow um, your vanilla, you know, on earth. Maybe you can do it in a greenhouse and, you know, make sure that uh, it's hydrophonic uh, growth. So it's an interesting movement there as well. I want to make sure that we have time for our, our final two questions. There are many more, um, but I, I want to try these out. So, um, 
let's start with this one. Yesterday was 8 billion day. So for those who aren't, aren't familiar, yesterday was uh, the date that was calculated that we formally and officially have reached 8 billion people on the planet um, as of yesterday, which is quite a milestone and comes with its own set of concerns. Um, so this says, you've spoken a bit about the different approaches and challenges in the global north and the global south and how to introduce categories against increasing wealth and access that are better for the planet. How do we develop those right propositions? How do we involve consumers in that process? And how do we accelerate change in a way that places the consumer at the center if consumers themselves aren't aware of what's best for planet, for example, or pri prioritize something else? And um, I also want to add to this, uh, perhaps also considering the legacy of colonization um, and, the, and the, the tensions and roles there between uh, the global south and the global north. It's a big question, but I'm happy to hear you. Talk. <laughs> well, That's a massive question. And I'm probably not going to be able to unpack all of it. What, what I, it's, it's a great debate. So one of the things we recently just on Saturday, we launched at COP27 was yeah. our uh, Beans is How campaign. So we're one of the founding partners of this brilliant coalition that's aiming to double beans consumption over the course mm. of the next five years. And particularly in mm. the sort of the global south, beans is such, uh, such a core staple for the diet that we overlook it. And the reality is we talk about planet health, we talk about consumer health, beans, pulses, legumes, however you want to describe that, that category of, of ingredients is such a great, uh, such great opportunity. When we think about bringing that to developed nations, the risk is around cultural appropriation and some of the challenges there. Yeah. But certainly in the developing world, it's about how do we take something that, we that they already consume and find ways to just raise it up. So not changing it, not bringing in you know, things that are uh, successful in the US, successful in the UK, successful in continental Europe, but building the culture, uh, the, sorry, the, the food options around the culture that exists, around the diet that exists. So we're just building on, on the great stuff and the great legacy that's that's appropriate to those regions. I think, you know, that that's how I would would very much think about it from, you know, certainly from a, from a colonial point of view. And then what we need to do in the developed world is bring what they know about these products bring mm. some of those exploration and flavors and ingredients and it's incredible you know uh, we we had a, an event at google new york where we we also brought and had had fantastic cuisines based on it from from all of the regional chefs around the the, the um google world as it were and, and the, the cuisine is mind-blowingly tasty it's fantastic what we've got to do is bring that exploration into the the cuisine and the diets of the developed world because i think that's how we start to bring transition we can't tell people not to eat meat and dairy, but what we can do is bring ingredients that are good for the planet and help them see the, the cuisines, the flavors, the benefit of that in, as part of their life. Yeah, so what you're saying, David, is like make, uh, make uh, beans great again. This, yes. is, uh, <laughs> this is a great, uh, and, I, and I agree, and, and there is so much you can do with the beans and you don't have to just consume them in, you know, in the cans form there's a lot of sprouting happening these days right that yeah. makes you know everything we eat so much more nutritioning so it doesn't cost a lot it's just like a little bit of of uh, work and and maybe um maybe it's it's another way to contextualize this you know ingredient that's been there for so long and and needs to be brought back for instance when i lived in ireland uh, many many years ago i was so surprised to see people um you know Eating beans on like a toast. I was like, yeah. <laughs> what happened to humanity? It's like, it's like, because it's so far away. You know, I come from uh, Israel where the Mediterranean diet is so big. Everything must be fresh. I mean, you know, uh, in America, there was a rise in, the, in a bowl, right? Like people eating 
uh, dishes. It was a new dish format that was that started. I remember Miriam and I wrote a report about it four years ago. Yeah. And people were like shocked. Like, do you eat an old meal just out of a bowl? And yeah, that's what we've been doing for so many you know, decades. <laughs> uh, we just eat like raw, fresh ingredients. And, but, but it's also a luxury of, uh, of living in the middle of Mediterranean, you know, where you have access to affordable, you know, vegetables and fruits. Um, but mm. there's definitely like the need to contextualize your product for um, for different audiences uh, in different countries is immense. And we're seeing from our data what's acceptable in, in Brazil is not what's acceptable in the UK. And like, how do you bridge that? Yeah. And how do you contextualize the product in a way that is exciting for the consumer is, um, is actually an, an interesting idea. I'll take it with the team as well. Uh, to push more of that because there's so many great products that are more sustainable. We just need to make sure that consumer uh, feel excited about this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Alan. Um, we've got some nice reactions there from folks who seem to, to enjoy that answer. Um, so I, we need to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I want to just all quickly say out loud the questions we've received just to pique people's appetite and interest um, and maybe give David and Alon some food for thought for hopefully the next time that we can speak about this. So uh, the first was we're seeing an interest, and this is from a member of uh, actually my team from Taste Rise. We're seeing an interesting trend towards communal experiences in food and beverage. Um, you mentioned nostalgia, but there's also shared experiences post-COVID, uh, kitchen travel, authentic experiences. Do you think there's an opportunity here to rewire the I before we to something more collective and leverage that for interest in sustainability? Which I think is a fascinating question. Mm. Um, the second is transformation and disruption for big food. What needs to happen in the market to drive accountability of organizations? Um, and finally, for for today at least, um, what are the hidden costs of a commitment to sustainability, and how can brands navigate them successfully? So lots of food for thought here. Um, thank you both so much for your time. This was a, a fascinating conversation, and I hope that we can continue this conversation as a community, as an industry, um, for the years to come. So thank you. If anyone is interested in re-watching this recording, it will be made available to you um, as soon as possible. So keep an eye out in your email from me uh, in the rest of the week, maybe into next week. And with that, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam, for having us. Thank you, David and Alon. Have a good one.